Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Calvary Chapel. And as uh, Pastor Richard says, welcome everyone in pixel land. <laughs> and like he also says, um, I also get a wonderful joy in my heart to be able to do this. And most of my joy comes from having to study the word up until the time that I have to do this. So gives me a little bit of time because I'm a newbie, but the fact of the matter is, is it's just so important and so wonderful to be in the Word of God every day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your loving kindness and your faithfulness to us, Lord. Lord, we know that you are faithful even when we are not, and we thank you for that. We love you for that. And Lord, we love you because you loved us first. And we ask you to join us tonight, Lord. We ask you to fill us afresh with your spirit that we may be able to discern what your word says and we may be able to look at it with your wisdom and your wisdom only. So we thank you and we love you and we praise you in your holy name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in, uh, I'm going to continue in Romans, the book of Romans. And we're going to be in chapter 3 tonight. And chapter 3 is probably one of the parts of the Bible that I love the most because it shows how much we need a Savior. And that's the essence of our Christianity is that we all need a Savior. And it's just really too bad that uh, the entire world doesn't see this and just we see it this way. But hopefully we'll be We'll be tacking on more people as we go along by the time Jesus comes back. So uh, verse, uh, verse 1, we're going to start, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back and, uh, and take a look at it. What advantage, then, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now, we talked about circumcision last week, uh, last time I was here. We also talked about God's judgment and how his judgment has seven different principles. So we'll continue on with that, and it says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were, the committed, were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, Paul says. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say 
their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than any better than they are? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of, the, of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. (laughs) Wouldn't that be wonderful? And all of the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God is set forth as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds Of the law? Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not not also the gods of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Paul says, certainly not. 
On the contrary, we establish the law. And I'll get to that towards the end. That's a little bit confusing, but in the beginning here, what I like to do with this chapter is kind of break it up into two spots from uh, the first, first verse to the 20th verse, God is God and we are not. And from the 21st verse to the 31st verse, God reveals his righteousness. So let's go back to verse 1, and in in verse 1 and 2 it says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So we all know that the Jewish people were, um, were brought, were, God's people. He developed them. And what's really funny is there's a lot of people that don't know that Abraham was not a Jew. But they hold him in high esteem. I have a friend of mine that's Jew, and when you walk into his foyer in his house, he has a a picture of Abraham with candles next to it. I mean, that's how they hold Abraham up as their father, so to speak. Now, Abraham is the father of faith, but he's not our God the Father. And he wasn't a Jew. He started out as a Gentile, an idolatrous Gentile. Wasn't a Jew at all and never became a Jew. The Jews were off of him, off of his, off of his grandson, Jacob. Jacob became a Jew through God's renaming him Israel. And that's what started the Israel nation. So a lot of people don't know that. The nation of Israel was invested with all that is important to us. They were given the oracles of God, which is the word of God. They were given the Bible. And they could have expounded on it if they believed what the outcome was in the New Testament. But they never did. God chose Abraham. He was, the Ur, he was of the Ur of Chaldeans. And God appeared to him. And Stephen tells the story in Acts chapter 7, if you want to dig into that more. So verse 3 and 4 says, For what if someone did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effort? Certainly not, Paul says. Indeed, let God be true, but every man be a liar. And this is where it comes in that God is God and we are not. It's as simple as that. As it is written, um, and this is out of Psalm 51.4, David tells us that you, meaning God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you, God, are judged. So if somebody has the thoughts about judging God, David prays that may you be justified no matter what. And we know he always is. As Christians, if you're sitting here tonight and you're a believer of Christ, you know that he's always justified in all that he does. Whether we agree with it or not, 
okay? So it goes on and it says, for what if some did not believe? What if somebody didn't believe? Well, we know that there's a lot of non-believers in the world nowadays. The fact that the Jewish people as a whole to that point had rejected the gospel did not mean that God's faithfulness to them was in vain. It did not mean that God's work was futile or without effort. So it really doesn't make a difference if we believe or we don't believe, God's still God. And God still makes a way, no matter what we believe. Uh, that, that, and that statement there, I try, to, I try to tell my brothers that, my two brothers, that it doesn't make a difference if you don't believe it or not, because it is what it is. And that's all there is to it. And you will find out sooner or later. It's as simple as that. So he says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man be a liar. Paul, remains, uh, Paul reminds us that God will be justified in all his actions. In the end, it will be demonstrated that even our unrighteousness somehow proclaims his righteousness and glory even if only in judgment. Even if only in judgment. So we all know, we all know that all, we all have to stand in front of God someday. And we know about that judgment. We know that our judgment's going to be giving out gifts and rewards. And we're always going to give them back to him anyways. But the unbelievers are going to have to go in front of that white throne judgment. And he'll be justified no matter what he does. It doesn't really make a difference, again, whether you believe or you don't believe. He's going to do what he is because he's God and we're not. <clears throat> if you think about it, we were all once not saved. And we had probably more, we, we, weren't, we were sinners, and we're still sinners nowadays, but we sin less because we're saved, or it's more, it's more prevalent to us on how we sin. So we try to stay away from it as much as we can. But he's even justified in our unrighteousness. That's why we came to him in the first place, because we knew we needed a Savior. We finally got it. It finally hit us in the noggin that we needed a Savior. And our un, our our unrighteousness drew, drew us to him because he is righteous. So verse 5 through 8 says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And Paul adds this little thing in parentheses he says, I speak of a male, or I speak of, as a man. And I'll get to that in a minute. But what they're trying to say is, as long as our unrighteousness glorifies God, then let's all do what we want to do. And God will be glorified. But our righteousness demonstrates God's right, our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness. And there's four things that I can tell you 
that number one, God is honored by our shortcomings. Because again, we go to him after we realize that we need him as a savior. Number two says, how can we punish, how can he punish us if we help display his righteousness? Well, number three says, because God's judgment of sin is always righteous. God can't get anywhere near sin. And if he can't get anywhere near sin and we're sinners, then we, meet, we need a mediary. And that mediary is Jesus Christ. And that's why we all are sitting here tonight, because of Jesus Christ. And number four, people who think otherwise deserve condemnation because their true focus is not on glorifying God, but on giving free reign to their sinful desires. So if, if somebody really looks at that slanderously and says, well, I can do whatever I want and God will be glorified. That's great. So I'll just go out and do what I want. Okay? And why are they doing that? Because they have those desires. And they're obviously not a believer at that point. <clears throat> There's a good example here. And I wrote this down and I'm going to read it. It's a conversation between Judas and God. It says, in theory, the most dramatic example of someone who might ask this question is Judas. Can you hear Judas make this case? Lord, I know that I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross at all. <laughs> now, is that crazy or what? <laughs> <laughs> what did even um, what I did fulfilled the scriptures? How can you judge me at all? And the answer to Judas might go like this: Yes, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness, and there was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. It is not credit to you that God brought good out of your evil. You stand guilty before God. So it always turns back to the fact that God is good and we're not. <laughs> and that's just exactly what he tells us in this chapter. God is good, we're not. When Paul says, I speak of a man, and this, this kind of, perplexed me a little bit until I saw this explanation. It says it doesn't mean Paul was without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he explains that only a man, a fallen man at that, would anyone dare to question God's justice. So it would only take a fallen man to be able to question God's justice on what he does. To me, to be perfectly honest with you, and I have to be honest with you, and I, I would never, I would question things and say why, but I would never question anything that happens and question God. I would say, why did you do that? Why did this happen? Or what am I supposed to learn from this? 
but I would never chastise him on why he did it. He did it because he's God, and he did it for a reason. And as a matter of fact, uh, Pastor uh, Rob and I were talking about this the other day. He'll let, he'll let us know why. He'll reveal it to us if that's his choice. Someday, when we face him face to face, he'll tell us about it. And I always asked him why. Uh, why did he take my wife, my deceased wife? Why did he give her cancer? Why, why, did, she, why did he allow her to get cancer? Okay. Well, I saw a little bit of fruit from that, actually a lot of bit of fruit from that, because I got saved because of that, and dozens and dozens of other people got saved in the interim. So is that the main reason? Probably not, but for me that's fine. And I remember reading, after asking him that, and it took me eight years to ask him that, I pondered on it and pondered on it and thought, you know what, who am I to question God? But then just one day when I was riding to work, I, I asked him. And I said, uh, you know, I, run, I never really bothered you with this, but why did this all happen? And that next day I was reading in the scriptures. And when I read in the scripture, I just go from chapter to chapter. And I try not to veer off the chapters because that's the way he talks to me. And I got to the chapter that's uh, chapter 11, I believe, in John, when he talks about uh, Lazarus' death. And he talks about Lazarus' death, and he tells Martha and Mary that this sickness was for God's glory. It wasn't a sickness for just nothing. It was a sickness for God's glory. And that really told me that he did answer me about that. Did it clear it up totally? No, but it was good enough for me because he's the one that told me that. And I never had to go any farther with any of that questioning. And right now I'm asking him, and this isn't about me, but I'm asking him, why do I have to go through this with my heart? You know, I, I was under the impression that you were going to probably protect me the rest of my life, and that's not the case. There's something to learn from this. There's, you know, there's other people that I know that have gone through sicknesses and have come out the other side seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm just, I'm really excited about finding out what he's going to do with it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm trying to develop a, a, a study, a, a Bible study on God's faithfulness, because so far my wife and I have seen so much wonderful faithfulness in him, even if it's just the little things that he drops down in front of us just to let us know that, look, I'm still with you, and I'm still walking through this with you, and here's what happens. There's some big things that have happened, but there's some little things that have really allowed me to understand that he's with me, and that's all I really need to know. I don't have to know why. Um, I've got that kind of investigative mind, but I don't need to have that with God because he'll take care of everything. He's perfect. I'm not. He's God. I'm not. So that, that's what helps me along with that. But as we go along here, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's true that God will use even the unrighteous of men, uh, the unrighteousness of man, to accomplish his work and bring praise to his name. 
Judas' betrayal of Jesus is a perfect example. Nevertheless, part of the way God glorifies himself in man's sin is by righteously judging that unrighteousness. So that's really, if you think about it, that's his job. His job is to judge unrighteousness in all of us. And that's pretty cool because he's the only one that can do that job. And that's good job security, isn't it? Especially nowadays in this world, that's real good job security. So most Christians, uh, and this talks about how they slanderously don't understand that. There are some people that when they hear that preaching, they think it's a negative type of preaching or it's false teaching. But it says most Christians preaching is so far from the truth, true gospel of free grace that Paul preached that there is no way anyone could ever slanderously report that they taught, let us do evil, that good may come. If we find ourselves sometimes accused of preaching a gospel that is too open and too centered on faith and grace and God's work, then we find ourselves in good company with Paul. So that's the right thing to do, to worship and, or to, uh, to preach a, a gospel or to preach um, centering on faith and grace. Because that's what it's all about. That's what our saving is all about, is, is, is mercy and grace. Without mercy and grace, we wouldn't be saved. We could sit here all day and stomp our feet and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. But without his grace and his mercy, we're, we're not saved. It's as simple as that. And those two items he promised to us. And we all know that when God makes a promise, he can't break it. Because he's God and we're not. How many promises do we make and we break in the course of a day? Probably quite a few, but God can't do that. So the conclusion is, is that there is a universal guilt of mankind before God. The guilt of both Jew and Gentile before God. So everybody's equal and everybody's on the same playing field here. There's nobody that's better or nobody that's worse. And I'd like to, in my old religion, religion, that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. We had to call that guy that stood at the pulpit father. And we had to bow and stand up every time he entered the room. And they had all these quirky, legalistic things that we had to do. And when I started coming here... And I saw the lights on, the actual light did come on <laughs> in, in my heart. And it was, just, it was just wonderful to me that we didn't have to worry about any of that legalistic stuff. All we have to do is be faithful to God and be truthful and faithful to him every single day. Not just on Fridays when you go to confession and Sundays when you go to communion and then the rest of the week you could do whatever you want to do. No, this is a commitment of lifetime that we make here. Every single day, every single minute of the day, which is is just wonderful. 
And it's everlasting because he allows it to be everlasting within us. <clears throat> so verse 9 said, says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Since Paul was a Jew, every time he says we, he means we to the Jews because he was a Jew. And he was a pretty good one at that. Uh, even though he was a terrorist, he was a pretty good Jew. So the point is, is that by nature, the Jews, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, or the Jewish person is no more right with God than the Gentile. They would like to make you think they are, but they're not. Okay? Paul demonstrates that the pagan or Gentile and the Jew are all under sin and under condemnation. So we're all, we're all sinners, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what religion we practice. It doesn't matter that we're members of a church or, or um, we're Jewish or we're, uh, we're strong Christians. And it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. We're all sinners, saved by grace. No one is better than others. Some religious people tend to condemn others over the over this same thing. Did you ever hear, oh, you've been hanging around with those born-agains again, haven't you? I've heard that. I've heard that from my own family. Um, as, far, as far as some of the people in my family are cons consider my church here, Calvary Chapel of Rochester, a cult, Okay? And they're from a denominational church. Or they might say, um, there's, there's another demonstration that they might say, oh, well, they'll, they'll degrade the importance of a non-denominational church. They have no idea. In fact, I've known some people from the Lutheran church religion that do that and have said that right to me. So... It's, there's no reason to even argue, but you just walk away and you just pray for them and hope that they understand that it's got nothing to do with a church. It's got nothing to do with religion. And it's all got to do with a relationship. And he keeps his bargain all the time. It's we're the ones that don't keep that relationship going. And I'd like to think of it as a, a telephone wire. It's constantly open. It's not a party line, okay? It's a private line between me and him. When I sin and I let it go for a couple days, he cuts the line and I get no fellowship. But when I tell him and I confess to him and ask him to forgive me and I try to tell him that I'll repent, although... Sometimes I don't fulfill that. I ask him to help me. And it's not his job to do my repentance, but I ask him for help anyway. He'll send a telephone guy down to reconnect the wire. And now we can have that communication again. Because I need to have that communication. I mean, especially now after uh, I'm over 65 years old here, I need that. Okay? 
when I was a young buck, I purported not to need that. And that's when I should have picked up on it, but I didn't. But now I need it even more. And of course, if I don't keep it that way, my wife will sense it, and then she'll force me to go back and call the telephone guy. <laughs> okay? But that's the way I look at it. That's what that is. But we can't, we can't compare ourselves. You know, there's a lot of times that we compare each other in church. And I, I can't compare myself with somebody else. I have a different style that I read the Bible and I study the Bible than probably Pastor Richard does. And I, we can't compare each other. What does make us compare and makes other people compare to us is the law. If we follow the law, then we start comparing each other. Paul says don't do that. He says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who uh, commend themselves. But they measure, they're measure, they measure, uh, they, uh, but they measuring themselves by their, by themselves, okay, that's looking in the mirror saying, I guess there's some other people that wish they were like me, okay, and there's people out there like that. I've worked a lot with people like that, <clears throat> okay, and they compare themselves among themselves and he says this is not wise. And it's not wise to compare anything. If you really want to compare yourself, and I've, I've tried this, if you really want to compare yourself, look in the Bible, go to one of the Gospels and compare yourself to Jesus. Compare yourself to Jesus, you're going to lose every single time. And we, we know that we, we like to strive to be like Jesus, but who can do that? We can't. We can't do it alone. We need God to do that for us, and we need God to sanctify us or separate us from all of that other nonsense. Paul also says in Galatians 2, verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So he's telling us again to stay away from the law. The law is only going to turn you the wrong way. And that might sound like an oxymoron, but it really isn't. To us, it's not. Because we have the sanctity of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus sanctifies us and separates us from all that legalistic stuff. I think I mentioned once before, my prior religion, religion, we couldn't eat meat on Friday during Lent. You know, and then we had people during Lent giving up, you know, candy bars. I won't, I won't, I won't eat candy bars during Lent this year. Okay, that's, that's, that's a terrible sacrifice, okay, giving up candy bars. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is that's all legalistic things. That's all legalism. And when I found out about that, I mean, I, I hate fish, so I couldn't eat on Friday. I had to have tuna out of a can or something. That was wrong. 
when I found out that that's kind of null and void, you know, I like hamburgers. I love burgers. I went out and got myself a big, fat, juicy burger. In fact, I got a Nick Tahu's garbage plate, too, <laughs> which really helped. <laughs> so, um, but Paul's right. We can't follow the law because the law is a schoolmaster to us. Tells us when we're doing wrong. And that's how, that's how he saw it, as something to do wrong. Paul thought he was perfect until he found out that even coveting something or thinking about it is a sin. And then he was just sorrowful about it because there's no way that you could ever keep those laws. He thought he was doing it perfect. But then he found out different. So that belief, that belief that we don't compare ourselves releases us from, a, from comparing to one another. No one is close to the standard of God. No one. No one's close. We are all far away. Jesus is the only one that can fill that gap for us. So we're far, far away, and Jesus is the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can fill that gap and bring us closer to God the Father and to eventually um, eternal life. We were also talking about that the other day, about eternal life and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I was kind of thinking to myself, I certainly hope he just doesn't have lamb because I really don't like lamb. And I hope he's got a whole separate Italian table there for us. Spaghetti and meatballs and chicken parm and all that stuff. So, and I'm sure that we'll all be fulfilled with everything that we desire. I'm sure he will, because that's how much he loves us. So the Jews, the Gentiles, the pagans, the self-righteous, the unrighteous, the religious... Once Paul shows all this in all of us, and he has up to this point in the book of Romans, he's hit on every single cylinder, he can then introduce Jesus in the gospel. So that was one of his main things. So now we go through these things about how we're not, we're not, we're not good. We're no good. None of us are any good. And we walk around all day and we say, yeah, he's a good guy and all that. And, and, that, and that's true. I mean, there are some people that have great personalities and they're very, uh, you know, they're very, um, they show that sacrificial love, which, which God does. And there are people out there that are not saved that automatically show that love too. I mean, I, I have some friends that show that love and they're not saved. But, we got a dark side. We all have a dark side. Uh, in Jeremiah, it says our heart is desperately wicked. We're desperately wicked. And as sometimes I think back and I sit and I think about that. And I think, you know what? God's right. We are definitely wicked. I don't want to sin. Because every time I feel that I sin, I'm putting another nail in that in that tree. I put those nails up there in the first place. I put him up on that cross in the first place. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that anymore. 
I want to love my Lord because he loves me and because he's done so much for me. And, and that's where we break, and, that, and that's where we, that's where we, that's where it helps. That helps us to understand that we're just a sinner and we're saved by grace. I remember first going into the jail and ministering in the jail and sitting down. And I remember one night, one kid found out that I used to be a, a policeman. And he looked at me, he says, you used to be a cop? He says, how could you be preaching? You never did anything wrong. <laughs> I says, I never did anything wrong. I says, you don't know me. I says, I'm sitting here on the opposite side of the table only for the simple fact of God's grace. I could be sitting right there with you with that same orange dress, orange uniform on because I, he's, been great, he's been grace to me. He's been grateful to me, even when I didn't believe in him. And I think about that all the time. You know, I got saved when I was 52 years old. And, you know, what did I do the first first 52 years? Sometimes Sometimes I pray and I ask God to answer my prayer. And when he doesn't answer it after a couple of days, I say, you know, I'm still waiting. And he says, well, you know what? I waited 52 years for you. So... He's right. He did. And I know, that, I know that time doesn't mean anything to him, but he knows that time means a lot to us. He knows that. And he knows when he's going to come back. We just have to wait. And we have to trust in him. So <clears throat> as we go forward, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to classify some of these verses. In the, first, in the first verses, 10 through 12, Jesus talks through Paul as a judge. In 13 through 15, he talks through Paul as a physician. And through uh, 16 through 18, he talks as a divine historian. So it kind of makes a lot of sense. And the first three uh, verses, God speaks as a judge, and it says, there is none righteous No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who speak, who seeks after God. Even when I was a Catholic, I never sought God. I never sought God. Who who seeks God if you're not saved? You got to handle it on your own. That's the way we were taught. That that's not a life. As far as I'm concerned, now it's not a life. You have to seek God. Verse 12 says, They have all turned aside, and we have. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And I know I had a note of this being unprofitable. Um... Unprofitable in the Greek means unfavorable and useless. Unfavorable and useless. So before we're saved, and even now, our flesh is useless. It really is. It's useless to us. It's not going to get us anywhere. But on the opposite side of the fence of God. So we have to be careful with that. 
It goes on and it says God speaks as a physician in verses 13 through 15. And he says their throat is an open tomb. Wow, that's, that's really powerful. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps. An asp is like a small serpent. Is under their lips. The poison's under their lips. Uh, James talks to us about our tongue, right? How wicked our tongue is. And we can destroy somebody with one word. And that, that, that's, that's, that's asps. If you want to know it, if you, can, if you can control somebody with one word, that's what will happen. And verse 14 said, Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Remember those days? I certainly do. Hopefully you never have to be in a policeman's locker room. Because that's where it is. It's unfortunate, but it is. There are, their feet are swift to shed blood. And we see that nowadays. We see that going on in our society right now. Everybody's so swift to shed blood. And God, and lastly, <clears throat> verses 16 through 18, God speaks as a divine historian. And he says in verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. Meaning, that's how they portray themselves. That's their ways. That's how they live. And, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. It's bad enough that we're all sinners, and we have to all go through that and accept that. But the one of the worst parts about this that kind of stood out to me was that there's no fear or reverence for God. He's been thrown out of the schools. He's been thrown out of the courts. He's been thrown out of the major government buildings. They don't even bother with him anymore as far as the government level is concerned. And if we do, we're wrong. If we do, we're, we're uh, persecuted for it. Um, this is the greatest threat of our country and the world. Not nuclear bombs. Not weapons. Not ISIS. Not any group of terrorists. Not China or even Russia. There's a big to-do on TV nowadays about how threatening Russia is and China is and their alliance is going to do us in. And That's not important. The important part is there's nobody that's fearful of God anymore. If we were fearful of God and we have reverence for God and we include God in what we do, this stuff wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. And in fact, more and more, we are becoming the enemy to the world. This Christians, this church, our church, the church, the true Christian church. 
we're becoming enemies of the world because the world says that this biblical teachings and people that are following the Bible are a, um, they're a problem and they're, we're the reason why they can't begin this global environment or this, this global government. Okay, we're that reason. And you know what? We probably are, but that's a good thing because we know where the global government's going to go. It's going to go right into the hands of the evil one. And hopefully we, we won't all be here for that. We'll be taken up and away. So we are, we are the enemy as far as they're concerned. Verses 19 through 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may, be, may, may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And again, Paul is reiterating to us here that the law is a teacher. The law is the thing that tells us we're doing wrong. Can we do without the law? No, we can't, because we need to know. We have to have that, that uh, compass on, on what we're doing wrong. If we don't have the law, just think about it for a minute. If we didn't have a speed limit on the expressway, of course, it would do me good because I don't usually go by the speed limit, and I should, but I don't. If there wasn't a speed limit there, then we wouldn't have to worry about getting stopped and getting a ticket. We could just do what we want to do, just like on the Autobahn. But how many accidents would there be and, and fatalities? It would be enormous if we didn't have something to restrain that. Paul tells us that the whole world is, un, in, is unrighteous in front of God. All are guilty before God. He's not condemning, but is building a case of a need for a Savior. And that's what I said in the beginning here. Half of this is going to be what we do, and half of it is going to be what God does. And what God does is good. Uh, there was a guy by the name of J.B. Phillips. I, I pulled a, um, uh, a quote from him. He was a Christian and a New Testament translator. And he wrote, It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Okay? So that's the, that, that's the honest truth, how much of that we do. Now Paul begins to explain the revelation of the righteousness of God. In verse 21 he says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness is revealed through the witnesses of the prophets and the law. To give a little explanation about that, Abraham, it says in chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteous, righteousness, okay? Abraham wasn't a Jew, again, I remind you, 
and he was a Gentile, and it was accounted to him. And it was accounted to him righteousness 14 years before he was circumcised. And the law never came clear. The law never came to be and was given to Moses 430 years after Abraham. So Abraham was found righteous because of his faith. And that's a, that's a good example for us. Not because of the law, but by, God's, by our faith in God, he became, they be, we become righteous. And he gives us his righteousness. There's a, there's a word in chapter 14, in chapter 4, that I'm, I'm gonna, uh, that's really used a lot the next time we get together, and that's impute. And impute means deposit. Um, it's like if you had somebody that was on a mission overseas and they needed money and they called you up and said, I need some money, so we would impute or we would deposit money in their account. We couldn't send them cash over there or a check because they would never be able to cash a check, but we would impute that money into their account. So God turns around and he imputes grace into our account when we believe in Jesus Christ. And he's continually, that grace is continual. It's like the water coming into the, the ocean, coming into the shore. It's continual. And I, I, got that, I got that vision on my brain when I heard that once, that grace is continual, that it's like, it's like the ocean. It's like the ocean coming into the shore. It's continual all the time, no matter what. And you know what? It takes, and I have learned just a short period of time that being God's child, we are just so blessed with everything. And we just, sometimes we just walk around, we don't realize it. And we need that reminder, but he, he just blesses us so much every single day. It's just, it's just unfathomable. In fact, I have had times where I've sat back and thought, Am I really worthy? And then when I talk to one of the pastors, they bring me back and say, yeah, you're right, you're not worthy. <laughs> Nobody's worthy. Nobody's worthy. He believes we're worthy. That's the most important part. And we need to glorify him for it and nobody else and nothing else. And that's what counts. But God's righteousness is revealed through the witness and the prophets. Being witnesses by the law and the prophets reminds us that there is still continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know that the Old Testament is Jesus proclaimed and the New Testament is Jesus explained. Okay, so there's a continuity there. There's a continuity because he allowed Abraham to be a believer because he believed, because he had faith. The law can't save us, but God reveals a righteousness that will save us apart from the law. That is the essence of God's plan and salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the salvation that is offered apart from the law, apart from our own earnings and deservings, apart from our own merits. Can't get there doing nice things. Should we do nice things? Absolutely. 
We should, because that brings out the character of a Christian and how a Christian's character is supposed to be an example of what Jesus Christ is. We're his ambassadors. But can we get to heaven that way? No, that, no that's not going to happen. Verses 21 through 26 could be named the heart of the book of Romans. And I'll read them. And then I'll ask you to underline some words. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely, underline that, by his grace through the redemption, underline redemption, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Underline that crazy word, propitiation. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed, passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that the present time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One of the things is that's how I got saved, by that last line where it says he passed over past sins. Uh, when I was with the Catholic Church, I never knew that my past sins were going to ever be forgiven. I had to go forward, and I had to work real hard Okay, I was watching Dr. Charles Stanley on TV one night. And I was in the other room making a cup of coffee and I heard him say at the end of his sermon, Jesus Christ died for your sins, you know, past, present, and future. And I said, what? That don't sound right to me. I got to carry what I did in the past. And I went back to the TV and I had to repeat it over and over and over again. And, and then I, I sat with Pastor Jeff and I asked him, what's, what's this mean? And he said, just what it says. He forgives you and passes over what you did in the past and what you're going to do in the future. That really blew my mind. I knew, I knew the past was real bad, but when he told me about the future, that, was, that, was, that blew my mind. And like I said, sometimes we just don't know the grace of God in us. And, and it's just amazing when you find out about it and it, it blows your mind. It drops you off the chair. It really does. And that, that one of those statements there was what brought me to Christ. I mean, I, I thought about it and then I took and got on my knees and thanked the Lord for it. You know, I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't know who Jesus was. Okay? I knew of him, but I didn't know him. And that's what really helps. So if you underline them, <clears throat> we're going to go through it real quick, and I think i got enough time here. So there are three ways to describe Jesus' work on the cross and the benefits that come from the gospel. Justified, we're justified, we're redeemed, and it was because of his propitiation. We will grow in these things as we go forward. Because we don't understand too much of it in the beginning, but we will understand as we go along. And that's where sanctification comes in, that he cleanses us and separates us. So we're the only ones with the jewel in our pockets, okay? The believers are the ones that walk around with the jewel in their pockets because they understand this. 
and I like to call it the jewel in the pocket. They used to use that with the inmates in the jail and say, you know, they, they used to come into the room there, five or six of them, and say, you know, we try to witness to the other guys here, but it's just not working. I says, because they don't have the jewel in their pocket like you do. They don't understand. You got to pray for them. And they did. So we will grow in these things. Christ justified us. Now this is justification. Justification is a court term. And I know that. Um, it means just as if. But it doesn't go any farther. It's not being forgiven. You still have a record. So if you've ever been arrested, you still have a record. Okay? The court justified you by not throwing you in jail for the rest of your life. And if the court case is over, you still have a record. You haven't been forgiven. Okay? Jesus is Jesus's justification is just as if it never happened. Just as if it never happened. It's not implanted. It's declared upon you. For us, it's not behavior. It's belief. It's something God pronounces upon us. Once it's done, there's no record. Once we're saved, God abolishes the record. He gets rid of it. Throws it in the ocean. Chooses not to remember it. And that's justification, according to the Lord, just as it never happened. When, when he looks at us, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Just because we believed in Jesus, he sees Jesus. Justified freely is a little bit even more intense. How can he do that? just freely justify you. And all he asks is that we just believe. We didn't do anything for it. In fact, we were just the opposite. We were sins for it. Well, he says, and John says in uh, chapter 15, verse 25, but this happened that the world might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Without a cause is our word. Freely. Okay? Freely is done without a cause. Unearned, without reason. Okay? Justified without a cause. The reason is not in us. It's in him. As opposed to the Pharisees, the, re the reason they hated Jesus was not in Jesus, it was in them. Okay, so to, to reiterate that, justified without a cause, justified freely, that's our word. He justified us freely. And let me give you a quick example here. <clears throat> there was an Englishman, he was pretty rich, and he bought a Rolls Royce. So he got in his car one day and he decided to take a trip 
a little ways to France. And he was going to stay over at France for a few days, maybe a weekend or whatever. I don't know how far that is, but it could be more than a weekend. So he got in his Rolls Royce and he started there. He got about three quarters of the way there and the car broke down. A Rolls Royce broke down. So he called the company. They sent somebody there immediately. They towed the car. They got him to his hotel. They got the car back to him the next day and it was perfectly fine. So they treated him so well, he wanted to thank the people at Rolls-Royce for it. So when he got home, he called the dealer. And he says, you know, I just want to say thank you. I want to tell you thank you. He says, for what? He says, well, my car broke down. And they came out, took the car, got it fixed and everything. And he says, hold on just a minute. So he comes back and he says, there's no record. We don't have any record of that at all. So that's what God does with us. We do something wrong in our life. We have a series of sins. And past, present, and future, he gets rid of them. And there's no record of them, just like the Rolls Royce. So every time you see a Rolls Royce now, you can think that your sins are driving down the road. They're never coming back. (laughs) So, redemption, that's the second word. This term is borrowed out of the slave market for the purpose of being set free. He has taken us from the slavery of sin and set us free. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6:20, "For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's." So we belong to him. We have to remember that we belong to him. And we can't abuse that right because he bought us with a price and he bought us with his life. And that was a pretty high price. John 8, 36 says, Therefore, if the Son of Man makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Uh, Verses 25 and 26, and I'll go over this quickly. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate that the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The word propitiation is borrowed from the temple rite when as animal figures, um, animal, animals figuratively came under the wrath of God as it was killed to satisfy sin in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Christ was our propitiation our cover for our sin, once and for all, satisfying the cup of wrath of God forever. So he satisfied that wrath. We don't ever have to look at that wrath again. He talks about faith. And the last thing I want to say is, 
Uh, I got this out of one of Dr. Stanley's books, and I, I really liked uh, I really liked Dr. Stanley when he was here. I followed him a lot. Um, and this says, it takes note of his death. He is a propitiation for our sins, and he redeemed us, brought us out of salvation, our slavery with sin, and this justifies us, wiping out our record freely for all of us who believe. And lastly, he talks about <clears throat> it's for all and it, it can only be obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. And I, re, I, I really remember watching Dr. Stanley on TV and at the end of his sermon sometimes he says, how does this all work for, for everybody? It doesn't. It only works for believers. And you have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior or it's not going to work. None of it's going to work. None of it's going to mean a thing. He also wrote, true faith is not just assurance in a certain outcome. Rather, it's absolute confidence in God's unfailing character and ability, regardless of the circumstance. So regardless of anything that you're going through or anything that you may go through in the future, faith isn't born upon that. It's on the absolute wonderful character of God and his promises. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Faith enables us to turn from the approval of the world and seek the approval of God. So let's pray and we'll take communion and let me ask Christian to come up while we come and take the uh, elements. Father, thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, we ask that you, uh, you bless us all during the time that we remember you. And we thank you in your holy name. Amen. It all revolves around the throne. And what we, what we heard tonight was uh, how wicked we could be, but how loving God is. And uh, at the supper before he died, he took bread and he asked his disciples and he broke it and he gave it to them and he told them that this was his body. But he also says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we do here. We do it in remembrance that our Savior gave his life for us and that he loves us more than anything and that we owe him a debt of gratitude for all he's done for us. And if he doesn't do anything else in our life just for the simple fact that a matter that he saved us is more than enough. So Lord, we thank you and and we take these elements in your as a remembrance, a remembrance of you. Let's take the takes the bread. Now it says I, be, I believe it says when the when the dinner was ended, he took the cup, and he told them that look, this is uh, this is going to be chaos, but this is the new covenant.
And you're going to understand it in a little while. But there's going to be a little chaos for a while. And really, in actuality, that's the way our life has been, has been was, was chaos before we accepted Jesus as our Savior. Now we know where we're going, and now we know the gifts that he's given us. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we remember you with the cup. Let's take the cup. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you that you have given us the ability to dig into your word and to understand you more. We love you. And Lord, I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters here and give them travel mercies for home and a wonderful day tomorrow that we will look forward to having you in our presence and loving you all the time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.